Hey guys, real quick, before we get started, I have a small request. If you've been blessed by our content and you like this show, would you take just a brief moment and leave us a five-star review? This is quite possibly the most effective thing that you can do to ensure that this content gets out to as many people as possible. Thanks. Hi, this is Pastor Joel Webin with Right Response Ministries, and you're listening to another episode of Theology Applied. In this episode, I was privileged to have as a special guest, Gary DeMar. He is the president of American Vision, and the topic for our discussion was all things post-millennial. We were kind of scattered in our discussion, so we really covered the bases, but we talked about the danger of two-kingdom theology. We talked about the danger of dispensationalism. Uh, we talked about the danger of premillennialism, and a lot of the post-millennial conversation was where to root it in biblical text, but then also how to be a post-millennial Christian in practice, how to practically apply that eschatology today. How do we win? And how did we get here as a nation and the world at large? And what's the solution? How do we get out of the hole? So if that's what you're looking for, you're going to love this episode. Applying God's Word to every aspect of life. This is Theology Applied. All right, so welcome to another episode of Theology Applied. As I've already mentioned, my guest is Gary. We have Uncle Gary is what you typically go by, but Gary DeMar with American Vision. Are you the founder of that, Gary? No, American Vision was founded by a fellow named Steve Schiffman back okay. in late 1970s. I came on in 1980 as a researcher and uh, just through a number of different things, the board decided to let uh, Steve go and I, I became the president probably mid uh, mid 1980s. Okay, cool. Could you tell us a little bit about American Vision? What what is the mission or the purpose of this ministry? Is it fair to call it a ministry? American Vision. What if you're familiar with Wall Builders? Uh, David Barton. Um, it's a kind of restoring, learning more about America's Christian heritage gotcha. uh, and making people aware of that. That's how American Vision got started. And the, the founder, when I came on, I said, look, this isn't what I want to do for the rest of my life is just talk about America's Christian history. What we as Christians need to do is to talk about a comprehensive biblical worldview and the application of that. And he, right. he agreed with that. He didn't know much. Really, he he kind of glommed onto the, onto that topic. He was uh, he partnered with Marshall Foster. I don't know if you know who Marshall Foster is. They see that's the thing. A lot of you young guys really the the history of all this stuff. Um, one of these days, I'm just going to have to sit down and go through go yeah, through all of it. That'd be helpful. So, so Marshall Foster is still in the in the realm of of America's Christian heritage. He's, a, he's good friends with Kirk Cameron. It was Marshall Foster who introduced Kirk Cameron uh, to uh, the preterist perspective. Uh, Kirk watched a, a video series that I, that I did. Then they, they did a, a, a documentary called um, Unstoppable. I think it was Unstoppable. Was that the one? I can't. I, that's, that's the one. It was. I don't know if that was the one. But it was on America's, America's Christian, uh, Christian uh, history. And... So American Vision moved into the, uh, the the biblical worldview realm, and I wrote I wrote the first book I wrote was uh, the first volume of uh, uh, God and Government, 
And it was just, it, and remember, this is the Reagan, this is the, 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 the Reagan decade. You know, Ronald Reagan was elected as president, uh, uh, beat Jimmy Carter by a landslide. Uh, in 1980, uh, Ronald Reagan became president, and it was really the first time that Christians had that Christians became a voting block. It was the born again voting block, mm. and this is when Jerry Falwell, uh, who was you know a Baptist dispensationalist, mm -hmm. uh, got involved in politics and started an organization called the Moral Majority, right. and he got Christians involved, and the. Uh, there was a national affairs briefing in 1980 that Ronald Reagan showed up for, uh, but Jimmy Carter and John Anderson, who was a third party candidate, did not. And it was at that particular uh, uh, meeting where Ronald Reagan kind of endeared himself to, to Christians. And this became then a Christian voting block. And what I want, what I what I knew needed to be done was that Christians need to understand that, that in terms of the Bible, government isn't synonymous with politics, mm. that there's God as a governor of all things, there's self-government under, under God, which is kind of self-control, uh, you know, governing your own lives according to, you know, God's standards for the individual. Mm. And there's family government, church government, and civil government. And so it ended up being a three-volume set, God and government, which is now in a hardback one one volume set and that kind of became foundational for american vision but as i went out and started teaching on this particular topic inevitably someone would say well you know why remember this is night this is this is early 1980 80, my first volume came out in 82 the second volume came out in 84 the third volume came out in 1986 and what was popular in in 1970s was hal lindsey's the late great planet earth which was published in 1970. And Hal Lindsey kind of made this prediction that Israel becoming a nation again in 1948 was prophetically significant. Generation was 40 years. You add 40 to 1948, you get 1988. Hmm. So there was a lot of buzz in the 1980s about the rapture was right around the corner. Hmm. And inevitably, inevitably, people would say, why are we bothering with this? Jesus is coming soon and all the, you know, all the signs are, are pointing to that. And uh, so that's when I added kind of the eschatological side of all, all of this. And then we expanded into economics, education, uh, creation, evolution, and the apologetic side, because I, I studied under uh, Dr. Greg Bonson at Reformed Theological Seminary. Uh, so this, this was a, essentially it was a package deal that the founder of American Vision knew nothing about. And so in, in, in essence, he needed me to kind of keep this ball rolling. Right. And so I've been with American Vision for, I guess, 40, 41 years. Wow. Wow. That's really cool. Um, yeah, these days, uh, man, if I had a dollar every time I hear a Christian say that, you know, that Christianity is not supposed to be political or Christians shouldn't be involved in government or this or that, um, it sounds like the work that you're doing is uh, what I wish a lot of Christians would read and study and understand. Yeah. Why do you think it is that? When do you think that really became a, a significant, dominant position with American Christians, that Christianity and politics have nothing to do with one another? Um, I don't know if there's a, I don't know if there's a, a, an exact point in time where that, where you could say, this is, this is it. I just, I think there was kind of a convergence of, of, of ideas, um, 
where I think eschatology had a lot, a lot to do with it. I mean, you Schofield Reference Bible, you know, came out in the early, uh, you know, early 19, 1900s. And uh, it kind of put the kibosh on, we're living in this parenthesis, uh, you know, the, the kingdom of God is, is yet future, we're living, we really don't have anything to say about the things of this world. I mean, even the, uh, the Sermon on the Mount doesn't, isn't applicable, you know, today. Um, Ex- start, thinking, explain that real quick. The Sermon on the Mount isn't applicable today. They would say it's applicable, but they would just say it's private, the privatized application. Right? Well, remember, the dispensationalist says we're living in a, a parenthesis. Explain the parentheses. Well, the parenthesis, well, that's, this might take a little, a little time. I'm trying okay. to be as quick as possible with this. Dispensationalism teaches that there is a, uh, a salvific distinction between Israel and the church. The dispensationalists claim that the church uh, arose because Israel rejected Jesus as the promised Messiah, and that right. stopped the prophecy clock of Daniel's 70th week, which was a, supposedly a seven-year period. That prophecy clock stopped, and so God quit dealing with Israel and he started dealing with this new entity called the church. And according to dispensationalism, at Pentecost or sometime after that, the church age began. So and right now, according to dispensationalism, we're living within the church age. And so the Sermon on the Mount was supposed to be for kingdom living. Well, according to the dispensationalists, the kingdom doesn't come until after this parenthesis is over, and that's the rapture where God takes the church off the earth. Right. And then there's a seven-year period. There's the rise of Antichrist. The Antichrist makes a covenant with Israel. The Antichrist breaks the covenants, rebuilt temple, animal sacrifices, Armageddon, all hell breaks loose, on and on and on. And then there's a bloodbath. Two-thirds of the Jews living in Israel are going to be slaughtered. Billions of people around the world will be killed. That's the dispensational system in a nutshell. Right. Do, real quick, so, do most dispensational... So that's super helpful. Thank you. Do, do most dispensational um, individuals, would they hold that the earth... Like a literal interpretation of, you know, Peter, when he said the earth will dissolve like snow, when they say new heavens, new earth, do they think God is restoring this earth or God's just going to completely wipe it out and replace it? Like Jesus well, is going to rapture his own, take us to heaven, which is some separate place from earth, and then we're going to eventually return back to a whole separate planet that he's going to create to replace this earth. Is that right? The dispensationalists teach that you know, this rapture of the church takes place. And then there's a seven seven year period where Antichrist right. kind of reigns. Jesus returns. So there's a, this rapture is secret. You don't see Jesus. Just all these Christians are taken off the earth. Right. Then after that seven year period, when Jesus returns, he then returns and sets up his kingdom on earth. And right. there, and that's their, that's revelation chapter 20. Although Revelation chapter 20 doesn't say any of that. And there's nothing in Revelation 20 that says Jesus is going to reign on the earth and rule from Jerusalem. Mm-hmm. Uh, and, and, and they have to have a rebuilt temple and all that. Now, at the end of that thousand years, uh, that's when the, the, um, the new heavens and the new earth start. So 2 Peter 3, according to the dispensationalists, does not happen until after the thousand years. Gotcha. Um, the, now... Most all mills, post mills, uh, who don't have that thousand year literal Jesus reigning on the earth, they they believe Second Peter chapter three is a literal 
fire-breathing catastrophe on the earth and a renovated earth. Um, I, I don't personally, I don't hold that, that position. John Owen didn't hold that position. John Brown didn't hold that position. John Lightfoot didn't hold that position. Others didn't either. The second Peter three is really talking about the, um, the, the elements of the old covenants are tested by fire and, and, and burned up. Um, not that the earth itself is burned up, but that old covenant order is burned up. Right. Uh, so it, different, yeah. you know, different views based on, based upon your eschatological position. That's helpful because I I was I was telling you before we started recording I was in San Diego well, I didn't tell you San Diego but I was in San Diego California I told you California and uh, San Diego is close proximity to um, Westminster Escondido and Westminster Escondido you know even John Frame you know wrote kind of his his critique of the Escondido theology he named the book the Escondido theology and primarily critiquing their right. two kingdom I think theology I, even, I think I even wrote a I think I wrote a foreword or an introduction oh did you. Okay, and so anyway, Van Van Druden would be I, for a lot of guys the gold standard there, but Horton, you know, Michael Horton and and multiple other yeah. guys would adhere to that strict two kingdom theology, where basically Druden, from what I've understood, and so I, anyways, I had an interaction with you know a lot of my pastor friends were Presbyterian, but a lot of them came out of Escondido, uh, Westminster Escondido, and so they you know were pretty staunchly two kingdom, and uh, and from what I heard from them. Basically, what was taught at the school was that um, that the only thing that is going to enter into the new heavens and new earth is, you know, the only physical thing is our physical resurrected bodies, because you have to hold to that without being just a full blown heretic. So you you've got to say that, you know, you've got to believe in the resurrection and a literal bodily bodily resurrection. But everything else, um, they they really believed everything would be burnt up would be complete it wasn't going to be restored so like text where it says you know that even creation itself is groaning with eager expectations for the sons of god to be revealed uh druden and those guys would say that you know that the creation is groaning with eager expectations to give way to the sons of god to to basically like a mercy killing it wants to die so that this new thing yeah can happen. and that's a pretty look that's a pretty popular position among a lot of even some even post some post mill guys okay I, I personally believe we need a almost a complete reassessment of eschatology, because if you look at the you look at the creeds, you look at the, you know the Nicene Creed, and you look at the Apostles' Creed. One of them says the resurrection of the body; the other one says the resurrection of the dead. One says um, uh, he descended into hell. Uh, uh, right. Nicene Creed says uh, a baptism for the remission of sins. And so there are a number of things, even in those con in confessional statements, and we don't even know uh, those creedal statements. We don't even know who wrote the Apostles' Creed. But no, throughout all these creedal statements and even confessional statements, Baptist confessions, Westminster Confession, whatever the case might be, there's very little on eschatology. Uh, everything, most of the stuff on eschatology, the Westminster Confession of Faith, of course, made a direct statement in its original version that um, uh, the Pope was the Antichrist. That was that was a popular view right. in the you know among the reformers. Right. And yeah, the sixteen eighty nine says that too, which I'm just yeah. happy to read. That is the Pope is an Antichrist. To which well, I would say yes, I, I meant. So that's I that, see, that to me is is in, in biblical terms that doesn't fit. So you now would say that there's a singular Antichrist? Is that what you're hinting I, at? I, 
was, I was raised Roman Catholic and I memorized, we had to memorize the Apostles' Creed. So if you, you look at it, you look at the Apostles' Creed, a, a Protestant who believes in the Apostles' Creed, Roman Catholics believe in the, in the Apostles' Creed. Yes. That, you know, I, Jesus is the Son of God. God is triune. All of that was in within the, the, the Roman Catholic Church. Uh, the, and the, the difference is, is that in, the, in, in biblical terms, an antichrist is someone who denies that Jesus Christ has come in the flesh. That yeah. is, the, an antichrist is someone who denies the Father and the Son. Well, Roman Catholics don't deny the Father and the Son. Right. They don't, they, so the, the biblical definition of, of an antichrist, I'm talking about biblical definition. Mm-hmm. First John, is, yes. Is most likely, and for, again, First John chapter 2, verse 18, John says, look, there, there's not just one antichrist, there's many, many antichrists. Right. He's, we're living in the last hour, and this is evidence. The evidence for that is there are many antichrists. So who are these antichrists who denied that Jesus Christ had come in the flesh and denied the Father and the Son? So that would be apostate Judaism. It's not, it's not Roman Catholicism. Here I think the Reformers got this wrong. That's why I think there are a lot of uh, guys uh, who are historicists. You know, they, they, they believe the Roman Catholic Church is, is the end-time antichrist. Not not in terms of what the Bible has to say and define it. I, I've seen guys write books on the Antichrist and just skip over 1 John chapter 2, verse 18, 1 John 2, 22, 1 John 4, 1 and 2, 2 John 7. And that, they never actually define Antichrist. Right. And that there were many, there were many of them. So no, that's that's a fair. I appreciate that. That's a that's a really fair assessment. And I've I've never thought that you know the Roman Catholic Church or the Pope is the Antichrist or the final Antichrist. But I have categorized the Pope as an Antichrist, which is what Reformed Baptist guys did, what a lot of Presbyterian guys did. But sure, the point you're do. making in saying that you know if we want to have a, a biblical definition of the Antichrist, the Antichrist is because you're right, John. Absolutely, he explicitly says that in chapter two. The one who is the Antichrist, but the one who denies that Jesus has come in the flesh, which is, and I, you know, I even wrote a book on First John, and I remember when I was dealing with that text saying that, you know, because saying that Jesus came in the flesh includes a lot. If we flesh out that statement, it says that, for one, it says that Christ is eternal. He came in the flesh, he came from somewhere, right? That He was somewhere else, and so he, you know, it says that he... You know, he didn't always have flesh, so what did he have before that? He was a most pure spirit with God the Father, eternal, eternally begotten, not made, and he comes in the flesh. And so you're right, by that standard, and that is what uh, John clearly says, by that standard, Catholics would not fall into the category of So now, this does not so I appreciate that. solve the Roman Catholic Church of all of its many, many Right, errors. of course. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. Uh, they may be anti-Christ in... But in terms of the Bible, they you can't really make that statement. But yeah. uh, the, the papacy, the idea of speaking right. ex-cathedra, uh, right. Virgin Mary, and the per- perpetual virginity, the right. assumption of Mary, praying right. to yeah, Mary, immaculate conception, all that kind of stuff. I mean, Roman Catholic Church has enough doctrinal problems. We don't have to make. We don't have to don't create have to extra it. ones. Yeah. No, that's fair. Thanks. I I appreciate that. So okay. So what, all that oh, being said, by the way, go it's ahead. Not, Kirk Cameron, the movie isn't unstoppable. He did another one. It's called Monumental. Okay. Uh, that's the one that he did on America's Christian heritage based upon this monument that is up in Massachusetts, which overlooks the harbor 
a gigantic, if you haven't, if you haven't seen it, it's really worth watching. It's called Monumental. Kirk Cameron and Marshall Foster are involved in that. And Darren Doan, Darren Doan actually was the one who kind of fixed uh, that particular, that particular uh, film. He's not giving any credit for it in, in the film itself, but Darren Doan was the one that actually put that all together and really make it, made it viewable. But anyway, wow. that's cool. a little side, a little sidetrack. That's great. All right. Well, so let, let's, I know that a lot of our listeners are very interested in eschatology and a lot of them very interested in post-millennial eschatology, which is where I'm at, but this is a recent, a lot of our listeners know this because I've shared it in prior episodes, but this is a recent development for me just in the last couple of years, really coming into post-millennialism. And I think what I hear from a lot of our audience is, well, I, I like it. I don't know anybody who doesn't like it. Everyone's like, I like it. I want it to be true. Um, but wanting, wanting sufficient biblical evidence. We've done some stuff on our show with like uh, Matthew 24 and the Olivet Discourse, which that for me seems to be one of, as I've learned and listened to guys like you and guys like Doug Wilson, um, I feel like Matthew 24 seems to be one of the easiest ones now to explain. Um, in fact, now it's like one of those things, like once you see it, you know, you can't unsee it. And so now it's, it's hard for right. me to look at Matthew 24 and, and explain it in the framework of any other eschatology but a post-mill um, preterist you know, theology. But what are some other maybe uh, key biblical texts that really convinced you of the post-millennial persuasion? Well, typically when someone becomes a post-millennialist, they're, they're stuck in the definitions, the tensional de- definitions uh, among amillennialism, premillennialism, and then post-millennialism. And they're, they're, they're battling a paradigm that isn't in and of itself clear of how you get there. Premillennialists have it very easy. Jesus is going to reign on the earth for a thousand years. Simple. Go to Revelation 20. You reign with Christ for a thousand years, although it doesn't say on the earth, and the ones who do reign with him are dead. So that's that's another issue. But theirs is real simple. Hey, interpret the Bible literally, uh, although it seems like it's the only place in the in the book of Revelation that they interpret literally is that right. 1,000 years. You're right. And they don't talk about all the other things in there that you cannot interpret literally. Right. So they got the easiest job to do. The amillennialist has the second easiest job based on, uh, based on uh, Revelation chapter 20. And that's simply because if you re- read Revelation chapter 20, it does not describe a millennium as we know it. We say well, it's a thousand years. Well, a thousand years is a millennium, uh, at, true in the sense that that's the definition of a thousand years. But a millennium has broader, a broader definition to it. In the sense, it's typically a time of, uh, of of peace, prosperity, goodwill towards men, all that sort of thing. But you don't find that in Revelation chapter twenty either. None of it is in there. So the, I, I'm of the opinion that you cannot build a millennial perspective based upon Revelation twenty. The pre mill can't do it because. Uh, it doesn't say Jesus is going to reign on the earth for a thousand years. It says nothing about rebuilding a temple. It says nothing about animal sacrifices. It says not, none of those types of those types of things. The amillennialist has a better case in the sense, hey, Revelation 20 doesn't describe what we would think of a, a millennium. In fact, if you go to the early church fathers and you read their discussions of 
the millennium, and premillennialists like to say, oh, all the early church fathers, almost all the early, early church fathers were premillennial. Well, dispensationalists wrote a, his master's thesis on that, and he said, nah, that's not the case. What you really find is, is the beginnings of all millennialism. And if you look back and you study, if you if, if you study the, the the early church and those who described the millennium, they didn't quote Revelation chapter twenty. They quoted Jewish sources, uh, which is which is kind of interesting, and which has nothing which have nothing to do with Revelation chapter twenty. Mm-hmm. So how do you, so then so how does the the, the post millennialist make make his case? I, I always tell people you you can't go to Revelation 20 to do that. I don't think it's the I don't think it has anything to do with what we think of as a millennium. Uh, so that's my first breakaway point. The second thing is is what you brought up, and that is uh, things like the Olivet Discourse, Second Thessalonians 2, the Man of Lawlessness, the the Antichrist issue. Uh, the Book of Revelation, uh, the dating of the Book of Revelation. What are all those symbols all about? Uh, but mostly, it's the it's the sign indicators that stop people from becoming postmillennial, plus uh, experiential uh, experiential exegesis. That is, look at the world around us today. Right. I hear that. So, all the first, time. so the first the first thing you have to do is get out of Revelation chapter twenty to build your case. Uh, number two, you've got to clear the deck by going looking at these passages like the Olivet Discourse in Matthew, Mark, and Luke. Uh, and say, hey, this deals with these the, the events leading up to the destruction of Jerusalem in AD 70. So that takes some of the criticism away from those who oppose uh, post-millennialism because, say, you know, we have wars and rumors of wars. You've got famines in various places. You've got false Christ and so forth. You say, well, wait a minute. Yeah, we, we do have those things. They were in the first century, too. And uh, Jesus was talking about that particular generation. And so one of the places that I, and there are a number of ways to do this. One of the places that I go to, this would be my, my third attempt, you know, after you say, get out of Revelation 20, that's number one, clear the, clear the deck with eschatological passages. And that is the uh, consistent application of, a, of an unbelieving worldview. Where does unbelieving thought go? Where does it, what does it lead to? when it is consistent with itself, uh, because it's always pitting one worldview over against another worldview. And I think what we've got going on right now, and we, we've had for a very long time, Christians are inconsistent. We mentioned very early on, Christians don't want to get involved in the things of this world. Right. Um, and the other side takes advantage of that because we've left a cultural and moral vacuum. And so one of the reasons we see the ascendancy of so much evil in the world is because Christians sat back and do nothing. They, they did nothing. Right. Uh, you go, th- go through history. Who, who are the educators? Who, who developed science? Hospitals. In all these cases, yeah. for the majority, majority of cases, they were Christians who did this. The great cathedrals. I mean, they, those cathedrals were, were built to last millennia. I mean, they're still standing today. I mean, you couldn't even burn down the, the Cathedral of Notre Dame. They had a very, they had a very uh, futuristic perspective, but we gave all that up eschatologically and I think culturally. We took kind of an, a pietistic approach to life, which seemed to be more spiritual. So we want to be, we want to be spiritual. Let's, you know, Jesus didn't get mixed up in politics. Politics is dirty. 
Um, uh, there's a separation between, you know, church and state. Uh, Satan is the god of this world. You just go down the list with these things is that uh, you, know, you can't impose your morality on other people. Uh, we're just supposed to preach the gospel. So you've got all this stuff, this kind of mix, a witch's brew of, of, of a worldview that, that essentially says to the Christian, we're on a holding pattern until some eschatological event takes place. Mm. Um, so I, I go to 2 Timothy chapter 3. I think 2 Timothy chapter 3 in the New Testament is the place to begin. And most people they said, well, how can you, why do you say that? Because 2 Timothy chapter 3 is truly significant in the way the Apostle Paul outlines the implications of an unbelieving worldview, where it goes, um, and then the other part is what we as Christians should be doing when we see the, the faltering implications of the consistency of an unbelieving worldview. And once you once you go there, you begin to understand. And this remember now, this is written Second Timothy chapter three. This is written to a young pastor, guy like you, living at the time where you had apostate Judaism, you had the the advance of the Roman of, 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 of the Roman Empire, and you had a prediction that the temple and everything associated with it was going to be destroyed. Real quick, so what what where where would you date? The writing of Second Timothy, because right there you just uh, said, you know, on the dates of these books, it's probably I'm, I'm going to guess maybe in the fifties, may have okay. been in the early sixties. I'm I'm not sure because that's to, another but, thing. I think for a lot of people, I remember you know with Jeff Durbin, um, you know, like dating the the authorship, the writing of of Revelation um, at I think I think he said like AD sixty seven, like just. Just a Probably few earlier. Years. I would say about AD 60, 64, maybe 65. Right, because a lot of people, I think that's part of it also, is the dating of certain New Testament books, because people you know, would say, well, this was 80, 90, oh, this know. was 80. They do the late, yeah, they do the late date thing. James Jordan has, a, he has 204 lectures on the book of Revelation. And one of the things he, I was listening to one of them yesterday, one of the points he makes is he says, you can go. You can go through the in, the internal um, evidence that you know the time texts, uh, the fact that the temple is still t- standing in Revelation chapter eleven. Right. The sixth king is mentioned, which was probably Nero. The number six hundred sixty six is referring to uh, Nero Caesar. You you and, would say that the the six six because I know that's what Sproul said, and that's to me that seems to make sense that that was a reference to Nero. Is that Jim Jordan heard? has a, a more interesting Jim's perspective, and I, I, I'm trying to get people to understand this. Uh, when, when, when Jim teaches through the book of Revelation, and you don't have to agree with everything he says. I mean, he, he, he'll tell you, look, I'm speculating here, speculating there. And, and I'm working on a series on the book of Revelation. It's not going to be an in-depth thing, but it's going to begin with this premise. How would the first hearers and readers of the book of Revelation understood it, and what tools would they have had at their disposal to understand it? They wouldn't have any commentaries. Uh, they would have never no helps at all. All they would have is, for the most part, the Old Testament and some, and some parts of the, the New Testament. That's all they would have to do this. Um, and so, and yet, there to understand it. 
And if they're to understand it, and that's all the tools they had, then we need to pay attention to that. Mm-hmm. And Jim makes this, this fascinating statement. He said that the book of Revelation is mediated through angels and those symbols, animals and so forth and so on. Babylon mentions Babylon, uh, mentions uh, uh, the, the, the city where Jesus was crucified is called um, uh, Egypt and Sodom. You have the, the candles, you know, the candlesticks, you know, all these Old Testament allusions. Some people say like 200 to 400 different allusions to the Old Testament. And he said, the, the book of Revelation, because it was mediated through angels, this is Old Testament language. This is, this is the, uh, it's kind of like, you know, Zechariah, Joseph, the, in dreams, they were angels. Yeah. Uh, Old Testament, angels, all the way through. Angels brought this, angels brought this, and so forth. But when you read the, when you read the Gospels and you read the letters, you don't see any of that type of language because that language is New Covenant stuff. Hmm. You do see it early in the, in, in the Gospels because that's still part kind of the Old, old Covenant. And so you know, Jim is saying here, look, this is a, you got to understand the Old Testament if you're going to understand the, the, the book of Revelation. And it makes no sense to have the book of Revelation done in the, in the 90s. It, it doesn't fit the new covenant scenario. It's it's completely different approach to, to the way it's, to, you know, to the way it's done. Um, so. Uh, so let, let's go back real quick. That, that's helpful. I appreciate it. But second uh, Timothy chapter three, what, I've got it here. Do you remember what verses you're referencing? Well, all the whole, you got the, it's the whole chapter. The whole chapter. Not to go through, and it's just it's real quick. Uh, okay. Second Timothy chapter three. Timothy is a young pastor, and Tim and Paul's giving him uh, giving him advice. Just basically say in the last days, because that, that's what people yeah. are going to reference. So starting verse one, but understand this, that in the last days, there will come times of difficulty. People will be lovers of self, lovers of money, proud, arrogant, abusive, disobedient to their parents, ungrateful, unholy, heartless, unappeasable, slanderous, without self-control, brutal, not loving good, treacherous, reckless, swollen with conceit, lovers of pleasure rather than lovers of God, having the appearance of godliness, but denying its power. Avoid such people, for among... Them are those who creep into households and capture weak women, burdened with sins and led astray by various passions, always learning. Stop! And- stop! Yep. Stop! Right there. Yeah, yeah. Okay. This is this is this is where people go. They 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 and, they and I've seen it quoted so many times that this is where they stop in order to try to make the case that this is describing our time. So what you first thing you have to do is study the. Uh, last days and go through the new testament find out what last days are all about we won't do all that but i guarantee you the last days refers to the 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 the, the last days of the old old covenant right the uh, acts refer- being at the root right like john the baptist talking yeah, about yeah 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 about- who, who who warned you to flee from the wrath to come he's not talking about something in the distant future but okay, so yeah, yeah. you get to, you get to the end of verse six, and people say, "See, this is this is talking about our day." But now look at verse seven, and this is what I say about the people who express and live out these characteristics in verses one through six. What will happen to them if, as they become more and more consistent with them over time? And then the next question is, what should we as Christians be doing while they're 
their collapsing worldview takes place. So verse seven, they're always learning, but they're never, never able to come to the knowledge of the truth. Mm -hmm. Wow. Wait a minute. Why are we putting so much stock in the power of these people when they're always learning, never able to come to the knowledge of the truth? Now look at verse eight. And just as Janus and Jambres opposed Moses, so these men also opposed the truth, men of depraved mind, rejected as regards the faith. Now, who were Janus and Jambres? Janus and Jambres were the two sorcerer high priests who stood behind the throne of Pharaoh when Moses and Aaron came in. Mm-hmm. Now, you got to picture this. Moses and Aaron come in from the desert, and all they have, besides God's word and God's command, is a dead tree branch. That's it. And that, and so, you know, they throw down the, 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 the rod, it becomes a serpent, uh, Pharaoh's, Janus and Jambres throw down theirs, and what ends up happening there is, of course, Aaron's rod consumes those of the, the Janus and Jambres. And what happens next? Ten plagues are, are, are issued against Egypt. Israel escapes it goes into the land of Canaan and goes into a, a new garden, so to speak. Now, so it's, it's a land flowing with milk and honey. In, in, in Numbers thirteen and fourteen, you you know the twelve spies are sent out. They, everything God said about this land is absolutely true. They brought back some of the fruit from the land. But they say, "Oh, there are giants in the land." So here, so here we see what happens when God's people are confronted with these types of people in verses one through six. They took a vote. Ten of them says, we can't go into the land because they're giants. Uh, Joshua and and Caleb said, God gave us the promise in Numbers 13, one, that we're going to take the land. They wasted 40 years in the wilderness because they didn't believe. Mm -hmm. So that's what you got to picture all this. Then look what comes up next. Verse nine, but they will not make further progress for their folly will be obvious to all as also that of those who came to be. So, briefly, what are we finding today? Unbelievers are becoming more and more consistent with themselves, with their worldview. They're killing their future through abortion. Right. They're mutilating their, 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 their future with tra- transgenderism. Mm-hmm. Uh, they're, they're bankrupting all of us. And unfortunately, a lot of Christians are kind of going along with, with, with this. And it's, it's, it happened in, in the wilderness as well. But it says here, but they will not make further progress, for their folly will be obvious to all, as also that of those two came to be. Now, then the next line, verse 10, but, but you, Timothy, you followed my teaching, conduct, purpose, faith, patience, love, perseverance. And you balance that or contrast that with everything up in verse one through six. And he goes on here, that you even followed my persecutions, my sufferings, such as happened to me at Antioch, at Iconium, and at Lystra, what persecutions I endured, and out of them all the Lord delivered me. And indeed, all who desire to live godly in Christ Jesus will be persecuted. But evil men and imposters will proceed from bad to worse, deceiving and being deceived. The, the other side is weak. The only reason the other side exists in any time frame, is number one, they're inconsistent with their worldview, and number two, they borrow moral capital from our worldview. 
But over time, they abandon that borrowed capital and it's become more consistent with themselves. They destroy themselves. Then it goes on. You, however, you, Timothy, continue the things you have learned and become convinced of knowing from whom you have learned them and that from childhood you have known the sacred writings, which are able to give you the wisdom that leads to salvation through faith, which is in Christ Jesus. All scriptures God breathed and profitable for teaching, for reproof, for correction, for training in righteousness, that the man of God may be equipped or adequate, equipped for every good work. There, that is postmillennialism in a nutshell. It deals with the real world. It deals with real sin in the world. But it also deals with the implications of sin as people become more and more consistent with it. The second phase of that is, or the, the parallel phase of that is, what should Christians be doing in the interim? And Paul gives the instructions. You follow my teachings. Now do them. Go out there and do them and replace what is disintegrating around you. Now we're seeing a little bit of this, not necessarily by, by Christians, but here we have this cancel culture going on. Right. A cancel culture with, with you know Twitter and uh, all the other social media platforms, as they become more and more consistent with themselves, they're losing their they're, they're losing their, their their grip. They got rid of Trump. Well, Trump was a big, big deal on Twitter. Right. He's gone. You got CNN right now that they're down to like 645,000 people watching them, uh, you know, daily. You got the, all these alternatives out there that are coming, that are coming out and people are abandoning these, these sites. They've all and that's, all, that's what happens to unbelieving thought as it becomes, as it becomes consistent with itself. Christians need, to develop a Christian worldview and get back to basics. And notice the basic here is you learned this stuff from your grandmother and your mother. You need to, mm -hmm. these basic, these fundamental principles you need to learn and you need to apply. So you build from the bottom up. And that was why that my God and government book, books begin with God is a go governor of all things, self-government, family government, church government, and then finally civil government. Mm -hmm. And now you go back to so this is the second Timothy chapter three. So now you go back to first Timothy chapter three and it talks about leadership. And that is the person who can't govern his own household shouldn't be governing the church. Right. So to me, that's how you defend post-millennialism. You can bring there are a whole bunch of other verses you can bring in about um, the, the word of the Lord will cover the earth as the, as, as the waters cover the sea. There are all, all of those verses, but, but this is a practical application, not a, post-millennialism, because to me, post-millennialism is built on uh, Revelation chapter 20 uh, and the post well, post the, the year 1000. I mean, just it doesn't fit. Mm -hmm. uh, so th that that's where I've become convinced on, of post-millennialism. It, it hasn't been on a bunch of these kind of proof texts for it. And you can make a case for that, um, that, you know, the mustard seed and the, and the, right, and the, the, tree, and the, and the trees, and, I mean, all all those types of things. But this is a practical application of post-millennialism. Uh, the book of Acts is a practical application of, of post-millennialism because even with all the persecution from the Jews and eventually from the Romans, they're gone. The temple is gone. Roman Empire is gone. Uh, Christians transformed the world from this. They didn't do it perfectly, but we should be getting better at it with practice Major universities in the United States were started by Christians, Harvard and Yale. Right. You've gone down on the list with this, you know, Dartmouth, Columbia. Uh, and we, we give them up because we compromise. And that we just got to quit. We have to quit compromising. This is one of the nice thing about, things about what's going on in, 
in, in Moscow. Uh, and the, the reason the reason someone like Doug Wilson gets gets slammed so much is because he's he has drawn a line in the in the sand and he says we're on this this is we're on this side of this and we're going ahead and we're not just we're we're not just um, you know criticizing culture we're we're transforming it, you know, from, from the, you know, from the bottom up here and we're trying to create a model. I know a lot of people are moving to Moscow, but that's, that's not going to work long-term. Right. And we should be taking that and going other places and doing, you know, go, go thou and do likewise. Right. No, I completely agree. No, that was really helpful. That, I mean, that's part of what appeals to me is that, you know, the name of our podcast is Theology Applied. And I think that's one of the big problems is you have Christians saluting the inerrancy of scripture, but not, actually believing in the sufficiency of scripture not actually willing to take the sword off of the mantle and you know if somebody's trying to bust down the door and come into your house the enemy's at the gate like grab the sword use the sword apply your theology and and theology applying our theology beyond just um our private lives and our homes our marriages you know i mean that Christians have, we've never been shy to do conferences on marriage and family and conferences on the church. Um, and we, so it's like, we, we think that the scripture applies in these two realms of the home and the church. Um, but that somehow, you know, I was preaching just the other day in my church and saying, you know, like the Simba, you know, Mufasa illustration of, you know, pride rock and Mufasa, the king is showing Simba all of his kingdom that will one day be his. And, you know, Simba said, what's that dark shadowy place over there? And you could almost hear like the evangelicals saying, that's the realm of politics. You must never go there. We don't have any authority there, you know, but Christ is, is king of all. And, and so for me, I mean, to me, I, for my listeners, I don't know if I've ever shared this, but the starting place for me, so that was super helpful, Second Timothy 3. For me, it was very similar. It was a practical starting place. So the text for me was just the Great Commission, that we're called to go and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them into the name of the triune God, and then teaching them to obey all of Christ's commands. And for me, this is what I, I, I took that, and then I cross-referenced with what Jesus says you know, in Matthew 16, that the, the gates of hell, he's going to build his church, the increase of his government, like it, it's, it's not just going to sustain, but it's going to grow. He's going to build his church and the gates of hell will not prevail against it. And the gates are, are actually the defensive, um, you know, and, and the, the church is on the offense. It's being built, it's expanding and increasing and, and hell is actually on the defense and hell won't be able to hold back the growth of Christ's church. So, so Matthew 16 made me think, all right, the church is going to, to win because Christ is, is going to ensure that, that that is so. And then, and then you take that with Matthew 28 and the Great Commission, uh, which includes not just making converts, but teaching them to obey all of Christ's commands. And then you ask the question, well, what are all of Christ's commands? And, and you start thinking, well, well, every command in Scripture ultimately can be tracked back to Christ. And, you know, but even with the greatest commandment, the second greatest, to love the Lord and love our neighbor, and that being two tables of the law of the Old Testament, the Old Testament, the Mosaic law, the Ten Commandments being, you know, or the, the uh, moral law being the, the bedrock for where we got all these civil laws in the Old Testament. And, and then all of a sudden it's like, oh my goodness. So the, fulfilling the Great Commission is talking about how to start a school and, and how to have uh, a, a God-fearing government and how to do this and how to do that. And so then the only question left is, and I think a lot of my pre-mill friends would be here, they would, I, I could convince them of theology needing to be applied to all of life. I can convince them of that sooner. But the reason they're able to still hold to, onto their pre-mill uh, theology is uh, because I can't convince them that we'll ever be successful, right? right? So they're like, theology applies to everything, 
But so that's why I think you, you need Matthew 28 and Matthew 16. You need both of them. Matthew 28 says, this is the job. Matthew 16 says, and it's going to work. And once I had those two pieces, it was like, well, then of course we should have Christian yeah, well, nations yeah, the, and Christian governments. I always, I always tell, tell people is that uh, if, if, you, if you make post-millennialism so grandiose and then people look as to where they are right now, they'll say, there's no way we can get from here to there. Uh, and I, I, I sit back and I think uh, the number of multi, 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 multi billion dollar companies that got started in garages. Right. Uh, Jeff Bezos, uh, you know, Apple, um, uh, Walt Disney, uh, the, 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 uh, the guy who started eBay, uh, th- th- they start, they think how small they started. Right. And then people, and people will criticize Bezos. I mean, he built this, oh, all this, he did all this and all this and all this. I said, look, you could have done that. Mm-hmm. He, he did it. You could do something like that. It, it's so, but if you make the, if you make the task so grandiose at the beginning, people say, there's no way we can get from here to there. Right. And I, I, I've, I've told this this story is I, I started I started lifting weights when I was probably I don't know eleven or twelve years old, and when you buy a weight set, if you buy an Olympic weight set, you get they're in kilos, but basically they're basically the you go the American w- weights and measures. You get forty five pound plates, thirty five, twenty fives, tens, two and a halves, and one and a quarters, and you know you buy a set you know, 300, 315 pounds, very, very few. I don't know any 11 year old, 12 year old is going to be able to lift three, you know, do a bench press with 315 pounds, do a clean and press with 315 pounds. That's not going to happen. Those weights, those smaller weights are on there. You start at a lower weight. You, and you incrementally to get stronger, you add the one and a quarters or, or two and a halves and after a while, you look after four years or so, and you said, look what I, I, I had a big chart, big chart that I had. And I filled it all out and all my workouts and my record, the records that I did and so forth. And I, I, you go back and you look what I was doing when I was 14 years old and what I ended up doing when I was 18 years old. And if someone had said, this is what you're going to have to do in order to do what you want to do, I probably would have said, oh, I, there's no way I can do that. I can only lift a 110 pound barbell over my head. So what we have got to do is be careful of how we present our, the case for post-millennialism. Uh, you can make it so grandiose. It gets people so excited about it that when they go out there and start working on it, they get discouraged because it isn't moving as quickly as they want. But remember what Paul writes in, in, in uh, 2 Timothy chapter 3. You followed my persecutions. Right. And all who follow uh, Jesus Christ are go- are going to be persecuted, and so there is this. Here's what the unbelievers believe: this is the how, what's going to happen. They're consistent. It doesn't mean that things are going to be a bed of roses to get there. Here's what you're supposed to do while this is taking place, etc. So you have to be careful on how you present the case, uh, and because we're far, we're very, very you know far behind. I mean, the, the, the Princeton. Princeton started in what was called the log college and it started in a log, basically a log cabin. Well, you right. go up and look at Princeton today 
It's no longer a log cabin. Mm-hmm. Um, and, w- you know, we as Christians have to start thinking of the possibilities out there, but not not be discouraged if we don't reach those things immediately and, and, and give up. That's good. Yeah, I appreciate that. Um, so what do you think in terms of, this was one of my questions. It seems like, you know, so unbelievers, at first they're borrowing capital, moral capital from Christians and the Christian worldview. And they're also borrowing and borrow, we're being charitable there because the actual word would be stealing, we're right? Stealing they're it, they're yeah. stealing from Christ, uh, not, but, but they're, they're stealing from Christians and moral capital, but, but they're stealing from Christ, his principles, right? They want the principles of Christ without the person of Christ. Um, but they're using these principles because they work. We live in God's world. God has rules for his world and God will not be mocked. A man reaps what he sows. And so non-Christians do that, but then eventually you said, you know, that they become more and more consistent with their actual worldview, which of course, when you become consistent with a worldview that is antithetical to Christ, then the result is chaos. My question is within the post-mill framework, things, you know, yes, I understand your point. It's going to be slow, right? It could be, it could be a few thousand years. It could be 20, 30, 40,000 years, who knows? Um, But it seems like on one hand, I feel like you know Christ is defeating his enemies one by one. That, that's another thing that was convincing for me because pre mill it seems like um, the first enemy for Christ to defeat is death, whereas the Bible says that you know the last enemy is death. Um, and so, so I, I I see Christ defeating his enemies now, um, but then there's certain enemies where I'm like I, I felt like I felt like that one was defeated. Like how many times do we have to try socialism? until that enemy is defeated. You know what I mean? Like, so my question is throughout the last 2000 years, since the life, death, resurrection and ascension of Christ and the fall of, of, you know, the ending of the old covenant, the fall of Jerusalem in AD 70, would you, would you say that, that there are some big worldviews, just demonic, horrible worldviews that, that really have been laid to rest that aren't going to resurrect and come back and we have to learn that lesson again? Are we progressing well, uh, you know, again, I think when you think about you got the majority of Christians send their children to government schools. Right. What, 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 do, you, what do you expect? I mean, be like, oh, let's let's send our children to the Roman schools or let's right. send our children to, you know, you know, Daniel and his three friends. They were captives. They right. they they had to be there. So and adults. As an example, right, and I know there are some schools that are better than others, and so forth and so on. But there is no school out there, there's no public school out there that's teaching biblical world and life view Christianity. And there are lots of Christian schools that aren't teaching biblical world and life view Christianity. Right. So there just needs to be a, and I don't know, I don't know if it's going to be come by way we got we finally get we kick get kicked in the head, and we Gary North has this this uh, uh, analogy that, that Ray Sutton said, that there are, there are all these medicines in the medicine cabinet. And for every, every time there's an illness, they go and they pick one of these remedies and it doesn't work. And the next time they get ill, they pick another, eh, it doesn't work. And they pick another and it doesn't work. And finally, the last one to, to the, in there is a, a Christian worldview because they've exhausted all the other ones. Now, I don't, you know, I, I, I don't, I don't want that to, you know, to, to be, it doesn't have to be that way. Uh, I, I'm beginning to see a lot of change out there. There are lots of Christians out there who are catching on to this. I mean, when I was in, you know, when I was a Christian, no, no one was talking 
mean, Francis Schaeffer was 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 talking Christian worldview, but he, his was more of a, um, uh, a kind of a philosophical dy- his, historical dynamic of, of that worldview. Uh, but you know, you could have talked to a lot of Christians today. They don't. They have no idea who Francis Schaeffer is. Uh, they they just don't, because I think one of the reasons is is that Francis Schaeffer didn't offer an alternative. He didn't offer specifics about here's what we need to do. He was premillennial, so his eschatology held him back. Uh, he was somewhat Vantillian in his view. That's why he mentions presuppositions and so forth. Um, but he just could, and his son apostatized. His son's a, I mean, he's just going way, way off the deep end. Frank, Frank Schaefer, Frankie Schaefer. So, but things we didn't have, we didn't have, we we have very few uh, Christian defense foundations out there. You got Liberty Council, you have Alliance Defending Freedom. There are about, there are about six of them out there that are defending Christians in in, in court, winning lots of cases. Uh, Christian school movement is growing. It's been, and it's been because of COVID, it's growing even more. COVID helped, yeah. There's a lot of good curriculum out there uh, on this. Uh, podcasts like yours, podcasts like mine, what Jeff Durbin and those guys are doing, cross politic guys and what and what they're doing. There's there's good discussion on 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 Facebook on all of these dis- different topics. I mean, something posts, somebody posts something, and I'll see these these. Um, these comments, and I think, wow, we're, I have no idea who this guy is, but my, this guy's right on the money. Hmm. And my wife and I went to a, um, it's called the Pregnancy Center. It's north north of here in Jasper, Georgia, and a good friend of ours runs it. And it, it, not only does it talk about abortion, but it's it's just not it's not a it's not just a negative approach like don't get an abortion. It's we we will help you with your child. You decide to keep your child. We will help you. They have. A, a, a place for them to come in with clothes. They can take take courses. They work with them and so forth and so on. And it was at their last banquet. My wife and I were sitting down and there was this young couple and I forgot what they asked me what I did. And I told them what I did. And they said, Oh, I, we, we really like, uh, we like George Grant and uh, Greg Bonson. Now hmm. they didn't know who I was and I didn't know who they were, but they knew George Grant and, 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 and Greg Bonson. Uh, I'm thinking, where did they, where did they find out about this? Uh, so there's a lot, it just, it's, it's, it's going to take time. There's a new day. Eschatology is big, is big right now. Amillennialists, historicists, amillennialists and premillennialists don't have any real answers. They're still debating their position against preterists who essentially wipe the floor with their with their exegesis, I mean, I, 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 I somebody sent a video of a guy who used to be a Christian. And one of the reasons he left Christianity was be said, "Oh, Jesus predicted that the end um, right. that he, that the world was going to end this generation." This generation. Like and I'm thinking, this is this is a seemingly intelligent guy. He had he doesn't have a clue. When when Doug Wilson debated uh, Christopher Hitchens, Christopher Hitchens brought up Matthew 24, and then. I don't know, 90 seconds, Doug Wilson shut him down. Mm-hmm. And so there, when, when, when I started in this, in, in this, when I used to do radio shows, oh, the attacks I got, which didn't, didn't bother me. Now, if I do a radio show, you know, 80% of the people say, yeah, Gary, I believe the way you did. I did this study on my own or I read your book and so forth. There's been a whole, there's a, been a sea change of this. The guy on Gab, I don't know if you, 
if, if you're on Gab at all. No. Uh, but this guy, which is kind of an alternative to YouTube or Twitter, I think it's. Yeah, I'm very know. familiar with Gab. I'm not on okay. it, but yeah. Yeah, the, he loves David Chilton. Huh, really? Uh, he, he pushed my book, Wars and Rumors of Wars, gave us a $500 credit to advertise on Gab. Wow. Uh, so there's a lot going on out there that we just don't, a lot of us don't know about. Mm-hmm. The Internet's made it possible to, I can, you know, send PDFs all around the world. I don't have to, you know, a lot of people can't buy books because it's, it's too, too expensive. Uh, the tra- people are translating stuff all the time. Uh, so we are just at the we're just at the beginning, I think, of a of a paradigm shift, and Christians who don't get on the train are going to be their their view is going to be left behind, which is okay by me. Left behind, but um, yeah, <laughs> their yeah. view will truly be left behind. Um, yeah, no, I I agree. I, you know, it just in the last ten years. Or so I it it does seem like there's just a major shift that people are thinking differently. People want to apply their theology. People want to um, see Christian schools, Christian government, Christian this, Christian that, um, and people want to fight. And I think I don't know, in God's providence, I think that's sometimes what it takes. I think we just we had just a, a I don't know a bunch of spoiled children. It seems like we just had like like the some generation. I don't know what generation, but some generation. The sin of Eli. We just had these these spoiled sons that just were lethargic because they had all these provisions that America gave gave to us, you know, and now all of a sudden, like COVID made a bunch of people think, right. We, you know, Doug Wilson said it like this, we all had to learn in, you know, 15 minutes, what we should have been studying over the past 15 years, you know, about God and government and all this, you know, and, but it made a lot of guys, myself included, like, Oh my goodness, I don't have I don't have a a Christian worldview that encompasses these kinds of situations, and it was all ethereal and all theoretical, and, you know, and not a big deal until the last couple of years, especially. Now everyone's like, "Yeah, I want to think about um, what vaccine I get. I want to think about who I vote for. I want to think about this. Think about that." And you know, and so now everybody is like, uh, "The Bible actually does have an answer to these things." And the guys who still want to insist, because some guys they are going to get left behind because they refuse to budge. But the guys who still want to insist that this, you know, pietism, this, you know, privatized lordship of Christ, he's not Lord of all. He's just Lord of your, your sweet little heart. And it's, you know, and it's private and, you know, he's going to return soon. And, and he doesn't really, Christ doesn't really have any desire to get involved in worldly affairs. Um, I really do think like that, that brand of Christianity is, is quickly becoming obsolete. People are just yeah, not interested. Look, there are, there have always been gatekeepers. These, right. uh, you know, seminaries are gatekeepers. Uh, you can't you can't minister unless you've, uh, you've you've gone to you know you've gone you've gone to seminary and uh, and there there really aren't that many gatekeepers anymore. Right. Uh, if you if you want to know something today, you can go online and find an answer to it or find a group uh, that uh, years ago you 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 couldn't do. Look, when I when I was in high school, I, I graduated from high school in 1968. I never, never heard the gospel. No one, no one ever talked about any of that. When Jimmy Carter ran for president and he used the, the phrase born again, the media didn't have any idea what the word, what, what that meant. Hmm. Billy Graham had to write a book called How to Be Born Again uh, in order to try to explain all this stuff. Uh, so we are so far behind and we, we, we capitulated, look, 
public schools when I was growing up, they were okay at prayer and they had, you know, a, a Bible verse, you know, here and there, but nothing was taught from a biblical worldview. But a lot of, I remember sitting down with a high school friend I hadn't seen in, I don't know, 40 years, went back, went back to Pittsburgh and, and uh, I told him, gave him my testimony. He said, okay, we were all Christians back then. We were all, we were all Christians. That's because you went to church. Although two doors down, there was a Jewish fellow who, you know, we forgot about him. But his his worldview was our worldview. He had the same moral, you know, everybody in the neighborhood pretty much believed in the same way and for the most part raised their kids in the same way because there was a spillover effect. There was kind of a, a Christian civil religion that still existed. Hmm. But that that changed, that changed rapidly changed rapidly. World War II changed the moral center uh, of, of the United States. It changed everything. We didn't see it right away, but it, it, it did. Um, Can you explain that a little bit? Yeah. Flesh that out. World War II. Well, here, you know, here we fight, fight World War I. It didn't last long before we're fighting World War II again. And what people saw what people saw over there, these soldiers came back. My father was in the Korea. He was in World War II. He was in um, um, Pearl Harbor when it was it was bombed. He was in the in the Pacific in World War II. He was in the Korean War. His right leg blown off in the Korean War. And these men come, came back and they saw horror. And the question was, where was God in all this? Same thing happened in Europe where the Jews, you know, you know six million Jews killed. Where, where was God in all this? People began to question the very core of their existence by what they had seen and what they had experienced. And it was slow. There was still still the Christian remnant there a bit, but people began to, I think, move on with their lives because they they had lost the moral center of things. And the, the Christian churches were weak. They didn't talk about these things. I mean, Billy Graham, you know, Billy Graham comes out in the 1950s and, uh, and there was Fulton, Fulton J. Sheen, who was Roman Catholic, who was who was on TV, but they weren't really dealing with the you know with the issues of the day in, tr- in a transformational way. We were sending all of our kids to public schools. We just thought they were great. You know, we were growing up. You know, we played football, cheerleading, da 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 da, all that kind of thing. And that, and secularism creeped up on us uh, to the point where it grabbed a hold of us. And then, of course, pastors weren't preaching. The whole council of God, and and so politically, what happened was the you know there wasn't that much of a difference between the Democrats and the Republicans. A, a Democrat, a Kennedy Democrat, would be considered a, a fairly conservative Republican today. Right. The Republicans today are are almost worthless. In hmm. uh, in you know Christian Christians give up, you know they, they or they. In 1980, we won the election. In 1984, Christians just thought, boy, we just changed the world. Well, we didn't. We just won a couple of wars. And then it was like it's they, they, they gave up. They just went right back to where they were before. It's like 9-11. <clears throat> All that happened. And, you know, it's, it's amazing how we've, we've forgotten, you know, we didn't see that as, as maybe a, a warning from God that we better get our better get our act together with all right. of this. So God has given us enough warnings here. Uh, I hope it's, I hope more and more Christians take heed. Maybe they are, maybe they're getting a little more fed up. Uh, maybe they need to understand 
that government, we just don't switch sides and we take the same money that they're, they're taking and spend it and for our pet projects. So a lot of teaching has to take place. And unfortunately, a lot of pastors aren't prepared for it. Yeah, I completely agree. It seems like uh, each generation always has to learn why. You know, you can pass down the what. This is what we yeah. do, you know, but they need to learn the why. They need to have the worldview. They can't just hang certain virtues in midair. They have to, there has to be a foundation for that, understanding the underpinnings. And uh, and it seems like, I don't know, it just, you know, one generation, I forget who said this. It might have been D.A. Carson back in the day, but um, one generation believes the gospel and the next generation assumes the gospel. The next generation neglects the gospel and the next generation rejects the gospel. Yeah. And, you know, and, and I think you, that, that illustration can apply beyond just the gospel. But for me, you know, I, I can't look back at Reagan and I can't, you know, that's, I'm just not, I wasn't providentially wasn't born at that time. But what I can see, you know, I was a part of Acts 29 network for a while and then left and want, you know, wanted to be confessionally reformed. And I kind of got, you know, I got sick of Acts 29 for a number of reasons, but the, the biggest one was Acts 29, I, in my assessment, just always wanted to be cool. They wanted to be cool in one way with Driscoll. And then they said, hey, you know, we, we repent of wanting to be cool and we don't want to be cool anymore. But really, they just tried to start that, – that just Driscoll – that thing wasn't cool in the culture's eyes anymore. So it's not that they they actually repented of the approval of man and the, the desire to be cool. They just – they recognized that society was condemning Driscoll. Driscoll was cool for a while. He was cool in Seattle. And the, but then when that started being condemned as chauvinistic and all those kind of things, uh, then all of a sudden, you know, with greater and greater emphasis on uh, feminism and all these – then it was like, oh, yeah, ho- holiness and gentleness and, you know, these kind – and so, you know, but then quickly out of that came – Racial reconciliation. Racial re- and I remember like six years in a row, every conference that, you know, racial reconciliation, racial, and they'd have a panel, you know, and everybody get up there and, and it was all anecdotic, uh, anecdotical, you know, and, and just stories of being pulled over by a police officer and mistreated right. and these kinds of things. And so eventually, you know, I, I was like, you know, I, I didn't even have the language for it at the time. I didn't know about critical race theory. I didn't know, you know, any of these things, but I was like, I'm just, I'm tired of, like, how many times do I have to repent of a sin that I, I I'm, I'm not even aware that I'm committing, you know, the sin of, Corporate and that's racism. Your See, that's your problem. So yep. you're not aware of it, so it makes you exactly, exactly you know, right. Racist by definition. See, it's, that, it's, it's all mixed up in this. But right. see, what ends up happening is what Christians don't. A lot of these guys who have these ministries and so forth, uh, they 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 don't like the particulars. They don't want to have to make the hard choices. They don't want to have to tell people. You know, you don't. Why are you sending your children to government, new government right. schools? Why are you doing that? Well, we, you know, our, our school is different. And I remember talking to some Christian leader. This was a number of years ago. And I, he said, well, our school is different. And I said, Tim, do you Everyone know that the other people are saying that about their schools? Right. This, this, the, your, their schools are different, but you're saying their schools are terrible. And they're saying your schools are terrible. He eventually, you know, changed. He said, not be, I don't know, because of what I said. But uh, and look what's happened to government, you know, government schools. Right. I mean, and so, so we my, think, oh, you know, they think we took prayer and Bible reading out of the schools in the 1960s, 1962 and 63. We took that out and that's what changed. No, it, it changed a long time before that. Mm-hmm. If, if you're just sprinkling a little bit of pixie dust Bible stuff in, 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 a, in, a, in a school and you're not teaching everything from a Christian, a Christian perspective. Right. You're, you're not teaching a Christian worldview, and you're right. turning your children over to the people who are trying to destroy you. Right. No, you're absolutely right. We have a lot of Christians who don't have a Christian worldview. And then, all of a sudden, 
as secularism took over, then the world just started calling it, started calling a spade a spade. So it's like you, you know, they they had already secularism had already gotten its fangs in, and the Christ, the actual meat of Christianity and a Christian worldview was moved out, and then but then there's still the remnants of you know the Christian pixie dust, like you're saying. Um, to to allow to to sedate the Christians to let the the actual meat of it the actual worldview get taken the teeth of Christianity get taken, uh, but here's some pixie dust so we're not actually really taking this thing. It's like oh okay well yeah they prayed before the football game you know oh, okay it's not that yeah, oh, that's, you know, that's a victory right exactly yeah. and then we have a moment of silence and then us a moment of silence right exactly a moment yeah but then once it's once it's all gone then eventually you, you know you don't do the pixie dust anymore because you don't have to you can just call it what it is yeah it's it, this is a public they, school what makes who, you think it's christian would have thought whoever would have thought that eastern europe is more christian than the united states the, the fact that eastern europe would come out of communism i mean hungary the president of uh, i don't know if he's prime minister or president of hungary is a staunch reformed Christian. Hmm. Uh, and you're beginning to, 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 to you know, see the Eastern Europe, Eastern Europe, you know, they've learned, they've learned about the past and they don't want to go back there. Right. Uh, you, you've got sub-Saharan Africa where the gospel is spreading. And we think America is kind of the, the breadbasket of evangelicalism, but no, and Central South America. Now it's the types of, uh, the types of uh, Christianity that are going on down there are pretty weak. But right. there are people down there trying to transform. I have a good friend in Guatemala that's trying, that's trying to transform. I got a, someone in Chile that's trying to trying to uh, uh, tr- transform it as well. All over the world, these types of these little things are are, are raised, you know, being raised up. And uh, you've got you've got Eastern Europe countries, you know, resisting the, the the flow of Muslims into their into their country. Right. The European Union is you know trying to punish them for that. But this, you know, he's, you know, they're not giving, they're not giving up. So, yep. so anyway, Hey, I've got to, it's, it's. Yeah, no, that's fine. 10, yeah. Let's, um, let's go ahead and wrap it up. Um, okay. The, the last thing I was going to say just with the X-29 thing is, you know, it, it became, it was cool here and then it was cool here. But my point is, you know, going into the woke thing, my point is just whether it be Timothy Keller or whether it be X-29 or a lot of guys, it just became um, gospel 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 centrality right that's what i always you know is you got to be gospel centered gospel centered anything outside of that is peripheral you're wasting your time but then what i noticed is you know you anytime i talk about something that's conservative you say no 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 just focus on the gospel but then anything left left leaning right engaging the, like you are engaging the culture and pushing for things in the culture to happen they're just all leftist ideas so you're allowed to do that while being gospel centered but if you do anything conservative then you're not being gospel centered so i think that was a big thing too but um any any last words or or if nothing else just let our listeners know how they can follow you well they can go to americanvision.org uh, and the podcasts are there their articles books uh, uh we have a a good, good selection of books on apologetics, America's Christian history, uh, eschatology, and a whole bunch of other uh, other projects as well that we're working on. Of course, I'm on I'm on fa- I'm on Facebook. Um, so, and you know, look, it's don't, people shouldn't be discouraged. People don't shouldn't be overwhelmed with what's to do. You know, I I, I talk about circles of responsibility. Uh, you are responsible for yourself first. Mm-hmm. And you're married, you know, children, your families, you know, second, you got friendships next, you have your job after that, you've got you know, your 
you know, to, to the circles just go keep going out. And so these, these are, you have know, priorities within those circles to keep, you know, do, you know, do, do what is called responsibility within those. And don't bite off more than you can chew, you know, t- take on something. Don't feel guilty if you're not changing the world within a week. Right. Uh, it just takes, you know, it takes time, you know, fix your own, you know, judgment begins with the house of God. It, judgment begins with us first, but we should be doing transformative in the way that we can support Support ministries that are doing some of this work, uh, and maybe encourage your pastor to, to to address some of these 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 topics. You might have to do some research for him on that. You got to remember, a lot of pastors they have a mortgage on the on the church. They start to, you know preaching on some controversial topics. Um, they may lose a third of their congregation. They don't want to do that. And there's lots of reasons why they won't preach on these topics. So there's an elder whose daughter got an abortion. Uh, so there's just, you know, there are people on maybe some form of welfare. You can't you know, talk about economics that much. Right. There's a lot going on that has, to, you know, that, that has to change. Yep. You're right. You're right. Well, thanks for coming on the show, Gary. All we right. really appreciate it. All right. Thank you. Thanks so much for listening. But real quick, before you go, do us a small favor, take a moment and leave us a five-star review if you enjoyed the show. This is undoubtedly the best way that you can help us get this biblically faithful content to as many people as possible. Thanks so much.